Welcome to the Big Chapel Podcast, a 12-ish episode podcast recorded here in Fennelys of Callan with me, your host, Eitan Houlihan. Each episode focuses on a chapter of the novel by Thomas Kilroy in conversation with enthusiasts, experts, detractors and admirers through insights and experts. This is episode 11 and we have the wonderful Sue Rainsford here, who is a fiction and arts writer and author of Follow Me to Ground. Get it in the bookshops, kids. It's a good read. Hi, Sue. How are you doing? Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. <laughs> my, my pleasure. It's lovely <laughs> to have you here. How are you keeping today? I'm good. I'm well. Yeah, yeah just delighted to be back in families back where in I haven't been families. for some time yeah. yeah we miss you we yeah. miss you <laughs> I feel um, like a part of me is always here <laughs> we do how you to. feel about that yeah, I don't no, know but <laughs> it's true it's true um anyway what what did you think of the book yeah I, I loved I loved the prose I think I was shocked by how by how kind of gestural and sort of even the I mean there are moments that are so archaic and sort of awkward and then they work on this very poetic level in a way that I wasn't quite expecting. Yeah. I suppose I went into it thinking, okay, it's a kind of historical novel that I'm reading because my friend Aton sent it to me. <laughs> um, and the first couple of pages that, you know, when they're on the train, when yeah. Marcus is on the train, um, Nicholas, Nicholas on the train, on the train yeah. and I was like, oh, you know, kind of like... I get it, it's modernism, you know, like, and then it sort of starts to develop all of these different textures, um, yeah, in a way that I didn't really foresee. And um, and there's lots of interesting things going on, obviously, with just, I mean, I think one of the things I liked about it the most was how it picks up on the... Um, some of the stranger imagery of like Catholicism that we might be used to yeah. having grown up in like like you and I and like Catholic school systems mm-hmm. like this idea of like you know devotion and um, like all this kind of like rapturous sensation that we just take as part and parcel of daily life but when yeah. you look at it um when you look at it objectively yeah. is yeah is like really intense and um and then obviously it just becomes about like this volatility or this like strange violence that plays out in this like particular geographic location yeah yeah and it's funny you say the word kind of strange violence it's strange violence is nearly a term that i would uh I would associate with your writing as well. Like, it's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, I'll um, take it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I mean, if you want to say a few words about Follow Me to Ground and like kind of what your interests as a writer yeah, are. Sure, yeah, sure. Yeah. I sp- um, So Follow Me to Ground is a novel that sort of takes root in a lot of um, contemporary art practices and contemporary art practice theory like and when you and I were doing RMA and visual arts practices mm. at IADT like a lot of the material I was looking at then um, so sort of conflations with femininity and the abject and femininity and the horrific and I suppose it speaks to my practice as a writer more broadly in that it's about kind of the perils of embodiment or embodied experience and um, and experiences of otherness to a degree and um, how affect lodges in bodies and how bodies are obliged, how flesh is obliged to kind of bend and morph to accommodate different feelings. Um, 
or different sensations and experiences um, and how it does that, how your flesh steps in at a somatic level when um, like rational discourse or speech can't, ser- can't serve you in, ter- mm-hmm. in terms mm-hmm. of expression. Um, so, yeah, so, so, yeah, some sections of the novel I felt were also speaking to that, that lodging of affect and, um, and trauma, just mm-hmm. like how, tra- and the slow, slow burn of trauma mm-hmm. um, and that delay of comprehension, um, that delay of understanding what it is that has happened to you or what you've witnessed. Yeah. Um, how you behave in a way, how you behave in a very certain way, in a very certain, in a very, you know, in specific situations that then um, you spend the rest of your life grappling with. Yeah. And the suddenness of those and actions. The suddenness, yeah. yeah. And yeah. then the delayed uh, reaction to mm. um, During the episode um, with Michael Holly, mm. who's a, a friend of ours as well, um, that idea, I, if you remember when we were talking about the... Uh, the looter and mm. and the woman whose shop was being looted. I was thinking looted. of exactly that. Yeah. And when she f- clings to him like yes. a lover, and he's and and he's so embarrassed by this sort of um, and obviously like it's this confusion of emotions where she's clinging to him. And is it like the other man sort of misreads what's happening? The baker yeah. identifies it. Yeah. And by kind of like saying, "Ah, oh, would you leave her alone?" Yeah. He throws a light on it. Yeah. Um, and he's so sort of and then this he's so sort of crippled by mm. as you and Michael were saying this em- embarrassment uh, um and and hits and strikes her and Lashes, it's this awful yeah. disturbing moment where and and then you think how the two of them will be affected by that mm-hmm. after they part ways and how given societal and cultural repression like they're never probably going to deal with that mm. um f- for the incident mm-hmm. that it was mm-hmm. it'll just be this kernel that sits inside of them becoming yeah. more and more poisonous each of them even though one of them is the aggressor you mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. um how, how it will affect po- their lives both of them yeah forward. yeah um so this is why I wanted to, I suppose, talk to you about this particular chapter. This, this juicy cha- chapter. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> this chapter called The Marriage. So uh, we come to it, I suppose, um, being uh, being introduced uh, to Emmerine in the laundry being yeah. told of the master's death. Which is um, so, because she's been off scene sort of mm-hmm. for so long and... The, the reader we know where she is because we've seen her we've seen the master tell her that she's going to a laundry yes. but um, Marcus they, none of them really understand where she's I don't think so, so. Yeah, I think it's, it's not really clear yeah. but yeah shrouded in mystery yeah and we were just talking earlier about the kind of like I suppose how the laundry is um, mm. is being portrayed here yeah because as soon as I read the word you know when the master says to her we're going to send you to the laundry all these alarm bells started ringing I was like oh god like you know and then but then the depiction of it is not is not it's interesting because the depiction of it is not that traumatic she has this very sustaining friendship with a girl called Molly and she seems to have sort of agency and like it's a porous structure she can go in and out of and Mm -hmm. like see men 
Um, but and yet then when she comes back afterwards it's almost you know the way he describes her Kilroy describes her state of mind is almost like there's like this PTSD quality to it like she's sort of removed from time she's out of time mm-hmm. um, this violent image of like shattered glass uh, being yeah. used to describe the quality of some of her days and um, when, she, when she returns when from she the returns, laundry to her life yeah yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah like you say the chapter opens with us seeing her after this and even it's so interesting the way you know she's told that her father her adoptive father Mm -hmm. has died um and then Kilroy gives us these careful measured movements yeah yeah yeah, for her response um before she cries before she cries yeah Yeah. but she takes off her cat she folds her apron yeah yeah she she kind of defrocks herself of that life to to emerge into the life that she had yeah left behind yeah um but even talking about the laundry as this kind of nearly nearly a safe space mm. a rarefied space for mm. reflection and for the nurturing of her friendship with the lovely molly and i mean we were just speaking about all of the i suppose travesties and scandals that have come to light about the magdalene laundries and the nature of women's kind of um uh tenures mm. there and uh it it, it does see we're, we're questioning the fact mm. this, this novel was written in the 1970s and I must pose the question to Thomas Kilroy if I get a chance about whether he knew about living conditions within the, the laundry. The extent of Were there the different abuse, tiers yeah. to kind of the, yeah. the engagement that a, a girl could have within the laundries? It's, in some ways it fits so perfectly with our contemporary understanding of the laundries because it's this this woman, this young woman, mm-hmm. or what did you know what age she is exactly when she sent there? And Marine, I mean, like burgeoning womanhood. Yeah. Like, so this know. idea of like when we have these, you know, testimonies from survivors now who say they, you know, they were sent, it turns out they weren't sure maybe why they were sent away, but after mm. years it found out, you know, they were sent away um, in advance of the seductive threat they posed. They mm. hadn't done anything or they hadn't had, they weren't pregnant. They hadn't had a romantic relationship. Seductive but, threat. Yeah, that this, I remember this documentary years ago, one woman in particular, I think she was sent when she was like 16. And it was years before someone said, well, you were a fine looking girl. And she was told that it was it was just assumed that she Mm. would. um, And it's something similar when she's when Emerine is talking about like, what? But why have they sent me? Am I not good enough? And Mm. I don't know. I kind of got the sense reading it. There was this understanding on Kilroy's part of how like trying to neutralize Mm. this like potentially you know this carnal female flesh that's just going to start blossoming and none of the men are going to be able to help themselves and well, chaos will ensue Nicholas and Marcus won't be able to help well, themselves certainly, certainly yeah you know and I mean even the master coming to visit her and asking her to give up on Marcus so we see exactly later that in the chapter, yeah and the yeah. onus is still on her it's mm-hmm. almost like you can control you can control whether or not you come home and that but yeah I suppose and then there is this this question of like you know given the time frame the novel was written. It's like how people maybe were still understanding these institutions at that time, that women were sent there, no harm befell them. It was like this kind of halting period. It was a safe space. Yeah. Honest work. You know. Until this like fine, amazing blossom had faded slightly yeah. and they could be returned safely yeah. to society. And people could control themselves yeah. around you again. Yeah. 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 Um 
Okay, and uh, then we, I suppose the, the rest of the intro is the progression of the mm. funeral mm. Um, and pausing outside the big chapel and yeah. then this line of uh, townsmen standing yeah. in the gate of the of the, of the um, cemetery mm. um, and how that was then reconciled with Nicholas's, or sorry, Marcus's bobbing bandaged head. Yeah, and even it's so bizarre, yeah, like when they're finally reunited, um, you know, Nina and Marcus, this pair of like, you know, lover. Have they been lovers at this, this stage? Romeo no. and Juliet type yeah. figure, you know. And then they're reunited, and she she's bathing him in vinegar, and it's like this astringent <laughs> fluid. It's like this punishing, yeah. and there's almost something kind of Christly about it, like this kind of yeah. coming down off the cross and being like scoured and bathed, and it's like they we don't see them embrace. We don't even see like a meaningful exchange of glances just like she's bathing his banjaxed head in vinegar <laughs> like it's so bizarre and she's getting and she feels very restored by that yeah. like just by sheer proximity to him it seems yeah yeah it's a, it's a weird kind of a dynamic that the two of them seem to have mm-hmm. um, and it's certainly not the stuff of uh, great romance <laughs> novels what you'd uh, hope for for yourself like no. no I mean even the closest that we got to that was when they were kind of cavorting by the river and that was quite could be quite stilted mm. at times too and it, she said like I think that there's a lot of fiction that's going on in Emery's head as well I think she's creating a mm. romantic narrative where perhaps there might be that much going yeah, on. Yeah, I think because obviously she doesn't have any other experiences mm. maybe to, mm. you know, this is her one and only mm. conduit for the romantic feeling or the, you know, sexual feeling developing yeah. inside of her and she's yeah. sticking with him. Yeah. yeah. And bathing him in vinegar. And bathing him in vinegar, part and parcel. <laughs> you know. Of course. Uh, on that on that vinegary mm. note, uh, we'll go into our first reading from the chapter. Mm. Later on, when she tried to put a shape on those last nearly five years in the town, they resisted her like softly dissolving butter between her fingers. And all she was left with was this blend, this running together of everything into the one drawn out moment. The days went so quickly, the days went so slowly, but never at a pace that she could recognise from her old life, when they were all younger, oh so much younger. It was like holding your breath for a long, long time and knowing that the seconds were spinning past but that you were holding them back at the same time because you could almost count them one by one. Today was the wedding day, that startled spring day when everything was broken up like glass into crystal clear fragments, the closed group of them around the altar rails with only a rag of its cloth left, or their walk back down the high street, she still wearing her white shawl, the town grinning and the young fellows dragging the feathers and the tin cans along the road in front of them. But today was also the sleepy menstrual while the baby grew inside in her and she watched herself swell with a stealthy contentment. And in this, she was never more separate from it all, Marcus even, because she knew she was nursing towards certainty inside in her, as securely as the growing egg itself, the belief that she alone knew what had been at stake in the town all along. And today, too, was the angry day they walked out the door, leaving her with the baby, Nicholas and her Marcus, the sameness of them, oh, the sameness of them from behind, the same squareness of the head, the same breadth of the shoulders. And she knew 
that one of them at least wasn't coming back. She had sank down into that lapping, drowning motion, observing herself with intent curiosity and a kind of easeful helplessness during the first year after the master's death. She might have crept into a corner of the house, so little did she impose herself on anyone, working quietly in the kitchen with Henrietta or on the crochet of the white shawl, which she alone seemed to know was for her wedding. She stirred only when Marcus thumped in or out, but he was still only a figure, a giant figure above the line of her vision. When they came in sessions, Mr O'Brien and others, to persuade him to go back to work in the tannery, having arranged it all with Mr Cody, she watched brightly from her corner as they slowly drew Marcus back to them for the sake of his father. They said they were doing it and sure anyway, Father Lanigan had been asked to submit and he was going to and was going to be put away into a home with the nuns maybe. And while they were at it, and no offence intended, shouldn't something be done too about Nicholas and the way he was going round the place like a... When they were alone, he asked her if he should take back the job, and she said yes, flushing darkly, and he went back to work that week. And she thought of how he must have been thinking of her all that time without saying anything, and her heart sang... Then, suddenly, when the year of mourning was up, she shook out her hair and put away the black dress in a drawer. She rolled her sleeves up over her arms and all her actions became animated again. Within a week of her transformation, she and Marcus had decided to marry. What matter if they couldn't leave the town now? Wasn't it only right that they should make a go of it here, especially after all that had happened? That's what she said to Marcus. But she was convinced in her own mind now that the meaning of their marriage had its meaning only in this house, in this place. That the display of it was nearly as important to her as the thing itself. So she also said to him that it might be the only salvation of all of them. She saw that he didn't understand. At the time, he said nothing at all about being married by the priest and in the big chapel, so she went around for days with her head filled with how they'd make a world of their own inside the four walls of the house. But then she seemed to slip back again into the old, sleepy rhythm of those years in which the wedding, when it took place, even the birth of the baby when it happened, were only incidental awakenings, brief moments on the surface of a deep, dormant pool. She awoke out of it all when she left for the for the factory job in England. As she handed Mrs O'Shea the child and the bundle containing the sachet of mementos, driven out not so much by the new hostility around her or by the unwillingness of Manny to give her housework any more as by the conviction that she had to get out and go living free because only she seemed to know that what was being trampled on here wasn't simply just a few people but some part of life itself. She said, I'll come back when my husband gets out of prison, Miss O'Shea. But in those first weeks of the marriage, they used to lie on for ages in the big double bed of the front room upstairs while the first light came in the curtains from the cross and she nearly always said but without a whole lot of worry in her voice you'll be late for work Marcus Mr Cody will be raging he would roll up her shift over her thighs and waist and breasts 
so that she could feel the full hard length of his body against hers. She giggled when their skins stuck together. When he raised himself up over her by his hands, she took hold of his thing because she knew he liked her too, but never without being overcome by a kind of terror. It was like having a separate, live, trembling creature between their bodies. It was one of these mornings that she broke off abruptly and said she was afraid. I'm afraid of Nicholas. Do you listen to me, Marcus? On one elbow she lay, her body from head to back to buttocks arched like a bow beneath the sheet. Why? What did he do? Nothing. He did nothing. Well, what's wrong so? It's he's always in the house, Marcus. I can't turn around, but he's behind me. Ah, Nina. Please, Marcus. She touched his arm. I don't know what I'm afraid of. Is it Nicholas? Nicholas? And then to her silent, bent head. Nina, we can't put him out of the house. Is that what you want? She shook her head, still without raising it. Anyway, he's only here during the day. She didn't want to say that that was the only time she was left on her own. There was something in Nicholas that reminded her of all the pain and fear in the town. Marcus, what? Ask him to... Marcus squatted before her on his haunches the hair like black moss on his legs in a great arc under his belly. He dipped his two large hands under the sheet and lifted her breasts out as he would two apples, need and curiosity together on his face. Who told you? he asked hoarsely. He told you first about men, Nina. Was it Mama? And then... When the terrible row took place when Marcus found Nicholas in the middle of the night crouching on the stairs while they were in bed and threw him howling out of the house, she knew that what she feared and hated in Nicholas was what she feared and hated in the town, the poisoning of everything that was trying to live naturally. Was it Mommy that told you? He was sweating and his hands were hurting her breasts. So this first reading gives a, a real insight into mm. um, Nina's state of mind. Yeah, uh, a lot happens for her. Like we see a lot of her psychology. Um, yeah. yeah, like we have the sense that she's, again, like the texture of her emotional life that's like struggling to put a shape on those last nearly five years in the town. Um, so this is, you know, this they have this quality of softness of dissolving um and this yeah it's just everything's blended together and yeah. sort of indecipherable and then but then there are these bursts of well then we have the net then we have as we were saying this following paragraph where today was the wedding day and then later and today too was the angry day mm-hmm. um this conflation of you know of the day of the funeral the wedding day and then the day that presumably um nicholas dies kind of off scene yeah so 
it's like in, in her memory, oh, there it's just this ongoing, dissolving, buttery state with mm-hmm. these like with these pockets of intensity just bursting out. Um, and then she remembers in detail one particular sexual exchange with Marcus. This is after, before, or after they're married. I think after. after. Yeah, yeah, it would have to be because they're in the house together. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I like the use of the word today within that paragraph. Mm. Where like, and we just have to kind of like mention the phrase sleepy menstrual. Mm. Uh, yeah. As something. Yeah, because it's, um, I mean, I, I yeah, I looked it up and, I, and mm. it just, yeah. I mean, well, on Google, it just says, you know, from the Latin <laughs> menstruate, like to menstruate, obviously. Mm. Um, and it's this, like we're saying, the sleepy menstrual about the baby grew inside her. Is it like this, this shit? Like, is it a reference to a shedding? Like, sh- or is it a f- more straightforwardly referencing, like, just uterine? In, I don't, you like, know. and we were saying, like, to menstruate is to shed. Maybe mm. menstrua is when it is retained. Mm. But maybe then, because it says the sleepy menstrual while the baby grew inside, mm. is it a state of kind of emotional mm. state or feeling or purging was cleansing within, you yeah. know in her in her mind and like yeah yeah you know and um, stealthy contentment you know i know sleepy menstrua stealthy contentment it's such like interior interiorized language mm. and such reflective language and it's it's yeah it's diff- it's very difficult to pin down in in this in this particular section because yeah it starts with the wedding day it ends with this ambiguous image of mm. Marcus and Nicholas leaving together and she knew that one of them at least wasn't coming back mm. and then yeah and then there's sleepy menstrua in the middle in the of middle it. yeah and it's nearly but it it does afford a kind of a um, uh, and as you were saying, an interiority of Nina's kind mm. of like uh, experience during mm. that which I kind of think is kind of wonderful like mm. that that she's she is she's given that because so often this nar- whole narrative is so monopolized mm. by the male um mm-hmm. uh, kind of uh, fighting exchange yeah. blah blah whatever and definitely in this chapter you just have all of these yeah all of these female perspectives either directly or relayed coming into this sometimes yeah um discombobulated proximity mm. with one another and it's a different it's a different sort of action mm. um and different different like strands of history playing out against each other as well and different confluences too of like female desire and catholicism and you know maybe uh, rebellion as well re- yeah like yeah. even micro instances of rebellion mm. yeah um, so yeah, that I just I I did love the use of the word today within the mm. same, and that's nearly what Kilroy has done within the entire book. This kind of like mixing of there there is no linear narrative. Mm. I mean, immediately when you begin the book, I think you're 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 just introduced to like about six different times yeah. Yeah. within the There's first few pages. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, a lapping, drowning motion, mm. you know. Uh, and, oh, and then when we were uh, talking about uh, when the year of mourning was up, when she shook out her hair and she yeah. sheds this kind of dark shawl. Yeah, and it's like this interesting, it's like she, like, was she looking at the clock? You know, was it, yeah. you know, was but it she to was the bright, minute? Though. She was bright in the corner. Yeah, yeah, you know? she's like this, this stillness, but it's not, she's not dormant, like mm. she's just 
she's just restraining herself yeah, she's sharp, yeah. up until the absolute last possible moment and then yeah and then she transforms yeah. and when you think obviously again it happens off scene but she's all this time to think and all this time mm-hmm. to feel like it's a year's worth of emotion just building in a series of deposits inside of her mm. I, I imagine mm. um, and there's this yeah this um, culture dictates that they all have to be mourning and even like taking off the clothes and like just the shaking out of her hair is like this sort of frivolous you know does she shake out her hair? Yeah, she I shakes out yeah, her hair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's quite kind of, yeah, it's, 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 ah, oh, now. Okay, and on then, we go. And then yet at the end of that paragraph, but then she seemed to slip back again into the mm. old sleepy rhythm of those years in which the wedding, when it took place, even the birth of the baby when it happened were only incidental awakenings, brief moments on the surface of a deep dormant pool. Mm. Like inc- incidental awakenings. This is just so damning and awful. It's like these what you would hope would be large moments mm. are she just almost like happened to be alert for them or ha- was only alert was as a needed moment, yeah. For, yeah. for them the yeah. light shone through for that second yeah um when she uh when she puts her black dress in in a drawer mm. that reminds me of how she folded her apron you know these sort the, of decisive mm. quiet moments mm. to herself yeah where there's some sort of yeah an article of clothing involved yeah and just like talking about like she was convinced in her own mind about what the marriage would mean mm. we were talking earlier and I'm just going to say it it does remind me <laughs> it reminds me of Lady Macbeth a yeah. little bit uh, yeah. who I was obsessed with in school but um, that she was so gung-ho about the murder and then when it actually came to the to the actual murdering and Macbeth was so reticent and then he overtakes her and becomes the kind of like mm-hmm. the villain mm. and she is I- I- immersed in grief like but it, what reminded me here of her was because uh, Nina is saying that she was convinced in her own mind now that the meaning of the marriage had its meaning um, oh, where are we now had its uh, meaning only in this house and this, this place yes. that the display of it was nearly as important to her as the thing itself that's it the display of it was nearly yeah. as important as the thing itself yeah you know so it's nearly as if she was the one who kind of like thought instigated it and that so this the marriage seeds. could be the symbol yeah. that brings the town together yeah. you know and that's then what um, Marcus kind of like emptily follows through with, mm. with the priest in the in the ruined and it, chapel and it falls out of her hands then mm-hmm. like he make, he interprets it in his own way he's yeah. ever going to get married in the big chapel Lanigan yeah. will do the deed and she's kind of like oh no I didn't envisage it oh god I didn't mean quite that. like this because yeah. she's removed from it then yeah. like yeah, it it's... becomes it's not about them at all it's just something a ceremony taking place as only to bolster yeah. the um, uh, power of the priest yeah you know, and yeah. nothing to do with them as a couple and their love feeling, yeah. Yeah. which I think was her romantic idea yeah. about what their union would mean to the town. Um, so, yeah, anyway, little Shakespearean reference <laughs> there from yours truly. Um, but then so we go on to the first weeks of their marriage when they used to lie for ages in the big double bed. And Marcus was going to be late for work, and Mister Cozy was going to be raging. Yeah, there's always like a like a very fond, like you know, mm. sitcom element to it, or something. <laughs> like it's so recognisable, yeah. um, and so humanising, mm. and it's like these moments of, um, yeah, recognisable sweetness that then play off against. Well, so it's almost like then we have you'll be late for work, Marcus. Mister Cody will be raging. 
and then he would roll up her shift up over he would roll up her shift up over her thighs and waist and breasts so that she could feel the full hard length of his body against her and she's giggling and then mm. she experiences a kind of terror when she's holding his penis. And then it was like having a separate live trembling creature between their bodies. It was on one of those mornings that she broke off abruptly and said she was afraid. I'm afraid. Full stop of Nicholas. Full stop. Like so much. It's like you're kind of you're there with them in the bed. And it's mm. and then it just takes this turn. Yeah. Um, and so much has happened. It's, you know, we've seen them be intimate together. We've seen them be like so familiar with each other. Yeah. She's a bit afraid of the penis. Yeah. Um, and then, and then, she, and then she says, I'm afraid of your brother. Yeah. In it's the so same loaded. Yeah. 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 And like we were saying, well, like I, I was saying at first, you know, this I'm afraid full stop. Yeah. The of Nicholas full stop. It's almost like she says she's, she has said she's afraid. We've seen her say overcome by a kind of terror at holding his penis. Yes. Then I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I've said I'm afraid. Now I have to say what I'm afraid of. Not of your penis. Definitely not of your penis. <laughs> Love your penis. Your brother, however. He's and then, creeping me out. Yeah. Um, and then, and then, of course, it could be, you know, that this moment of, you know, sexuality with her and Marcus makes her think of Nicholas because the fear she feels of Nicholas is distinctly yeah. sexual. But um, there's a few mm-hmm. different ways to read it. You know, but one of the uncontestable facts is that Marcus completely and doesn't he, believe yeah. her. He thinks she's and making something so, up. And isn't it so interesting though to look in terms of like all of the conversations we're having now about consent? Where hmm. He says, "Why? What did he do? Nothing. He did nothing. Well, what's wrong? So, and yeah. it's like this thing, this quality you can't describe, yeah. and yet you know that there's been an infringement, something yes. intrusive and invasive has mm-hmm. happened. You can't articulate it." And the fact that you can't articulate it means that it will be discounted. Yeah. And and yeah, and he just then plows on. Yeah. <laughs> this is but a small punctuation in his <laughs> yeah, erotic in his adventure day. for the day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, which he does. Uh, she continues to kind of nearly plead with him to ask Marcus to just mm. leave the house. And he could and she just wants him to pick up on her meaning and and then this whole thing of like the you know the the trauma of of saying of saying what you're afraid of is as yeah. traumatic as the fear itself and mm. she and and the, yeah and then this this weird exchange <laughs> where you know he lifted her breasts out as he would two apples and then the need and curiosity i think is an interesting mm. juxtaposition as well and then who told you he asked hoarsely so we're given to believe he's sort of losing the run of himself mm. or you know um who told you first about men nina was it mama and it's like yeah. this like i was saying to you earlier yeah. we have this earlier scene where nicholas is going through her um nina's room and this intimacy of cloth and he feels mm. like if someone were to come in and see him so overwhelmed um by pleasure at being near her intimate things yes. and the things that she puts on her body yeah. that he would be found out and there would be this collapse but I think that that is so much less disturbing than <laughs> if one were to be disturbed by incest that this yes. this that he's sort of getting a pleasure out of this transgressive quality of them having a, a shared maternal figure mm, yes. almost and that she we see her elsewhere s- struggling to remind herself to call Henrietta Henrietta 
Yes, yeah. yeah. And Mrs. Dawson later asking about her mother. Oh, I mean, you're yeah. Marcus's mother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, he just... And imagining um, that moment as well between mm, Henrietta and Emmerine kind of explaining uh, about carnal knowledge, mm, you know, and getting getting a, a rise out of that. Yeah, you know? yeah, mm. yeah. And then, and then, yeah, and then we have this, which leads then right on to um, when he throws Nicholas out and it's sort mm. of suggested that Nicholas maybe he's caught Nicholas masturbating in the stairs yeah. in the stairway an identifiable infringement that mm. Marcus can be offended that he by. can relate to yeah, or and that, understand yeah 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 and he can yeah. see no this is this is creepy yeah this is uh, wrong yeah this is unacceptable yeah, yeah. and so now so now, now we're having a confrontation now I will eject you from yeah. the house. Nina's now, yeah. discomfort wasn't sufficient, nope. but but this is and it's yeah. an encroachment on him as well, on his privacy as well. Yeah. And again, yeah. that quality of embarrassment we were talking about too. Yeah. yeah. And but and then we return again to this kind of affiliation of Nicholas mm. with the town mm. as well, which is makes. so interesting. It's like because she's again that sense of like poisoning is such a strong word. Mm. Um everything that was trying to live naturally mm. um this insidious this insidious quality of um of like tarnishing like mm. everything everything's tarnished and she's like we're just trying to live naturally be man and wife and yet there's this this backdrop that mm. that we can't step away from mm. Mm. and then it ends then with uh with Nicholas, uh, I mean Marcus, continuing on with his yeah, with his adventure, his erotic mission, yeah, yeah. As, uh, and <laughs> the hurting of her as well is just it's mm. incidental. It doesn't matter, you know. Yeah, um, but we know he's hoarse, then he's hurting her, mm. and it's like the sense of um, her voice is unheard. Her voice, yeah, yeah. I know because we don't see her. Oh, that then she says in the following section, which wasn't read, she says yes, she whispered, and it's on closing her eyes and. You know, we get the sense that she's just um, that she, she's yeah. she's recognised that this is isn't going to benefit her at all. Yeah, not a conversation really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she should know better. <laughs> Try and have a conversation with her husband when he's late for work. <laughs> and onto the second onto reading. The second reading. <laughs> Marcus used to say that he learned all about it from watching the bull up on the cows down in Riley's and that he used to think it could only be done when it was a woman's time, like a cow's. He'd be in a nice state, she told him boldly, if that were so. He grabbed hold of her, rolling her about in the bedclothes until she screamed, laughing. Stop, stop it. I'm smothered, Marcus, so I am. When he was out of the bedroom, she would stand in front of the big mirror, looking at the way all the points of her body ran into the dark nest between her thighs. She thought of Molly, her one bosom pal in the orphanage laundry, and wondered what she was up to now. Molly used to arrive late and last into the laundry girl's dormitory of a Sunday evening after being out with some fellow all day by the castle. She'd stand at the foot of Emmerine's bed, a huge mountain of a girl with brilliant cascading red hair, stretching her hands over her head, gasping, Oh God, Nina, I love men, so I do. How they laughed together. 
Molly never talked about walking out with a boy or of being courted or boyfriends or anything like that. She all, she'd always say with a throaty laugh as she set out that she was off to give it to them, as if she were dishing out punishment or something like that. For a long time, she had a respectable solicitor, a Mr Donan, standing out under the streetlight every night looking up lost at the dormitory window. A married man too, and a Protestant, and past the age when he should have got sense. Molly used to wave her drawers out the window at him for devilment. It was Molly who told her all about men in great gulping, giggling bouts of conversation with their heads half under the blankets so as the nuns wouldn't hear and have conniptions. She never thought then that she'd come back so soon and marry him. Bring up your basket, child, Miss Dawson commanded when she summoned her up to the house on High Street. I wish to discuss your impending nuptials. Mrs Dawson's sitting room was one of the few places of enchantment from her childhood. The luxuriant flowers on the wallpaper, the high polished sideboard laden with knick-knacks and curious and leather-bound photographs of cousins in India, Mrs Dawson said, and all the beautiful pieces of china. Everything in the room was bright with polish and laden with the mingling rich smells that even seemed to follow Mrs Dawson about as she walked. Emmerine sat dazed on the edge of the sofa, almost afraid to put her hand on the deeply embroidered flowers of the antimacassar. Tea, called Mrs Dawson, sweeping into the room like a duchess with a silver tray and tea service in one hand, a plate of steaming scones in the other. Sit, child, she boomed at Emmerine, who had scrambled up nervously. Today you will be served. She poured two cups of tea with a flourish and produced a glass of brown liquid, which she placed beside her own chair. When she handed her tea cup to Emmerine, she added sternly, Minton? Thank you, ma'am, whispered Emmerine, trying to stop her hand from shaking. My husband, the late Mr Dawson, was presented with the service by his appreciative colleagues. I hope you think it pretty, child. Oh, I think it's lovely, Mrs Dawson. I do. There was a silence while Mrs Dawson sipped the liquid from the glass and took a large draught of tea. Emmerine put her cup to her lips, but she was afraid to hear her own mouthfuls and put the cup back again untouched. Tea. Mrs Dawson creased her lips and sat into her chair. It is well known, child, in China, that new tea exhibits the narcotic quality in a high degree which is exceedingly injurious to the nerves. Chinamen never drink new tea. It requires age to evaporate the unwholesome, volatile oil. Yes, ma'am. Drink up, child. Emmerine drank, perspiring around her nose. It has come to my knowledge, said Mrs Dawson, that you're to be married by that... The pause allowed her to purse her lips. Priest. Yes, ma'am. He wants it.
Who wants this child? Marcus, ma'am, my intended. You know, of course, that the man is a lunatic. Emmerine hung her head. She didn't want to go into all that again. After the row with Marcus over Father Lanigan, she had sunk back into the drift, the flow, the way life eddied around her these days, so that nothing much mattered one way or the other because they'd be carried to where they were going. That is what he calls his church is a sty, that he's locked himself up in there in that house. A veritable lunatic, I am reliably informed. He's writing a book. That's what Marcus said. Father Lanigan was writing a book. And what, pray, is in this book? I don't know, ma'am. I expect his informations. Men, Mrs Dawson exploded. Men, men, with the exception of the late Mr Dawson, I have not met one who has caused less trouble than he. Politics, trickery, knavery of all kinds. We weak creatures, she roared at Emmerine. Weak as we are, have to mend the world that men destroy. Men. <gasps> she took a noisy breath and then said more quietly, Men are generally dispensable, and don't you forget it, child especially during childbirth and in all matters having to do with female apparel, which brings to my mind. Are you adequately provided with clothing, child? Emmerine told her all about how she and Henrietta had cut out the dress from a pattern in the Emerald Ladies' Journal and were going to make a jasmine headdress with forget-me-nots and cornflowers. And what, pray, is the length of the dress? Down to the floor, ma'am, said Emmerine demurely. I am glad to hear of it. Only the other day, Mrs Johnson said to me over tea in the hall that some enterprising, I can hardly call them ladies, in America are determined to give a death blow to crinoline. But of course... Realise that some equally witching attraction must be substituted and their notion is very short dresses a la by a broom girl, disclosing much leg and very high ankle boot, something perhaps in the style of Balmoral. Mrs Dawson paused to replenish her glass somewhere outside and Emmerine rapidly emptied her teacup and replaced it on the tray. When she returned, she took up the subject of Father Lanigan again, how it was generally felt that it would be better now for everyone if he were put away, how the dragging on of his law case for over two years now was a scandal and a reflection on the town. I prefer not to talk about it, Mrs Dawson. She had had enough of Father Lanigan for a lifetime. You could always, child... Mrs. Dawson stared at her with wide eyes. Be married in the house of God. Emery knew she meant the Protestant church. Oh, I don't think so, Mrs. Dawson, she whispered. Mrs. Dawson tweaked her nose once or twice and taking a pretty lace handkerchief from her sleeve, she blew into it with a loud trumpet sound.
She then sat a moment, staring at the carpet at her feet. I was not myself, she said huskily, blessed with issue. Mr Dawson and I, she dabbed one eye with the handkerchief, enjoyed every other felicity but that of generation. She turned on Emmerine abruptly. Are you aware, child, of your natural functions? Emmerine sat up straight with a shock. I beg your pardon, ma'am. Has your mother, has his mother, Mrs Dawson was extremely agitated as she tried to cope with Henrietta, informed you about life? Life? Yes, life, Mrs Dawson shouted. There is a false delicacy in these matters. I do not see why we should not attend to our private functions as we do to our public. It is all a matter of loose clothing, moderate exposure to air and regular movements. I have little patience, child, for those of our sex who would put modesty before cleanliness. Be that as it may, I have asked you a question, child. No, ma'am. Emmerine felt herself sink into her chair. She didn't say anything. I thought as much. Mrs Dawson was satisfied. Your mother, his mother, is a Christian woman. She is upright, charitable and was a good wife to her late husband. But she is an incompoop and that is the plain matter. Emmerine tried hard not to smile. She tried to stare at one point on the rosy wallpaper, feeling slightly faint because she didn't know what Mrs Dawson was going to say next. Marriage, Mrs Dawson announced with the air of conveying a divine promulgation, is the price we have to pay for lubricity and hankerings. Molly used to say she'd never marry because twould take the jig out of it. After only one week, Molly had organised a fellow for her and they all went walking out beyond the black quarry, Molly and Jack and she and Michael, hand in hand, and she was never so frightened in all her life. All along the road, she tried to take her hand out of his, but he held on like a vice. Molly was in a kind of sleepy stupor and didn't seem to notice her at all. And when they reached the meadows, she and her fellow disappeared altogether and her fellow leaned over and whispered in her ear. Is it afraid of me? Yeah. She could have fainted. So this reading is a kind of lighthearted section yeah, of an the book in general, yeah. really. Yeah, a little breathing space, I think. Yeah, uh, featuring, well, I was featuring Molly, the ultimate Oh, gal pal but it, it, yeah Molly's a legend yeah, yeah everyone yeah. needs a Molly oh, for sure. um, but yeah it starts with Marcus having this um, he used to say that he learned all about it from watching the bull up on the cows yeah and what a romantic huh? yeah, yeah. <laughs> just more just great a romance a great Marcus. guy and yeah. then um, uh, and he used to think it could only be done when it was a woman's time, like cows. Mm. You'd be in a nice state, she told him boldly, if that were so. 
and yeah and we're making the bold interpretation mm. she's referring possibly to her menstrual fluid that if he waited for her to be on her cycle yeah. she'd be in a terrible state afterwards yeah, yeah yeah that his this like misconstruing of of female reproductive functioning and yeah, I but think I like this little edgy Mina, you know, yeah, making a sexy joke or a sexual and joke, this, you know? and this knowledge that she holds mm. that he that he's presumably remains ignorant of, yeah. um, and and again that like they're just they're laughing together yeah. and you it's know, very sweet, they, yeah, yeah, um, and then she's looking at herself. And owning the, her sexuality there, yeah, I think. yeah, and observing her body like without any sort of judgment or mm. self-criticism um, and then and, and thinking of Molly and thinking of her carefreeness yeah and there, yeah there's this overall kind of feeling of yeah just fondness and mm. it's it's almost like compulsively she's returning to this kind of um, yeah this like this nur- these nourishing Moments. memories yeah. yeah yeah and I like that it's such a kind of um, sustained ode to female friendship in a way mm-hmm. and then it's just like yeah this character of Molly who's just you know unashamedly proclaiming her love for men and um, she is the most quotable girl <laughs> yeah. ever I mean you could just read that whole little section yeah. and, and I mean there has to be there has to be uh, uh, kind of like pop culture references to Molly mm. going forward I think yeah 100% we're gonna, yeah. yeah we're gonna do we're it. gonna see yeah. to that yeah. make it so um, and yeah and just the re- the repeated references to their laughter and, yeah. um, and Molly didn't want a boyfriend she didn't want uh, a husband she yeah. wanted to set out and that she was off to give it to them yeah you like know? just the language she uses and you know and not wanting to take the jig out of sex <laughs> By like weighting it down with yeah. something as formal as marriage, yeah. it's like just this, like this. Bur- like it's almost like she's a mirage in mm. some ways. It's like how is she functioning she's within so all these joyful belief and- systems? Yeah, mm. and her red hair cascading, mm. mountain of a girl. Mm. Yeah, and she is reminiscent again. We were saying of the girl who got into the the train yes. carriage with. Yeah poor thin frightened Nicholas when he was on his way back from yeah it's like this sort of like him seeing the, a, a woman like who he deems to be in excess is sort of like grotesque mm. yeah and then when Nina encounters a similar woman she, she loves her yeah. she's her best friend yeah, yeah and it's like her one straightforwardly positive relationship in the yeah. book like then we see like she has a positive relationship to a certain degree with Mrs. Dawson, but Mrs. Dawson is getting blazed, <laughs> you know, and she has to be a certain version of herself mm. when she's with Mrs. Yeah. Dawson. But with Molly, it's like the one time we see her sort of unimpeded yeah. or that her outer thoughts match her inner thought or like that she can kind of re- like Molly can read her as well. Yeah. Like when she says to her earlier, oh, you just you're mad for you're mad for Marcus. You know, yeah, like, you yeah. just love him. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah, just accept him. Yeah. Like, stop trying. Don't stop giving out about him. You yeah. Think yeah, you fancy him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Mrs. Dawson sitting around. and this little kind of uh, notion there now of the one, the few places of enchantment for her childhood. Mm. So she does kind of revert back to kind of a pre um, a pre-adult mm. state. Mm. Definitely when she is talking to Mrs. Dawson. Yeah. And again, it's like another, like, it's just so humorous, like, you know, and Mrs. Dawson is someone, again, 
you know, I kind of recognizable, like this matriarch mm. telling you to drink tea, like, you know, it's happening under the sort of guise of like, you'll be served and things that are good for you. But mm. like, but you don't have a, you don't have a choice. Like mm. you're, you have to, you have to sit there, you have to drink the tea, you have to let, you know, and all this advice she's giving her. And then this like amazing, like this amazing way of relaying Nina's discomfort when she puts the cup to her lips but she was afraid to hear her own mouthfuls yeah. and that just that like inherent sense of awkwardness where you're like no I'm just not going to even try and sip the tea because it'll make so much noise yeah. and yeah yeah yeah. Um, yeah I love that as well I just think that's so um, we've we've kind of yeah it's so relatable we've all mm. done that we've all in that, been in that kind of a position mm. I also love the fact that Mrs. Dawson has produced a glass of brown liquid that she's placed beside her chair. <laughs> yeah. There's near a bit of brown liquid for Emmerine there. Yeah. You don't need this. It's my no, medicine. No, no, it's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you're old like me, maybe you'll have some brown liquid. And then, yeah, and then she goes on this rant about, um, about yeah. men and she's trying, she's, you know, trying to, you know, repeatedly makes attempts to disparage the priest, and Nina's yeah. like, "This is one thing that I've yeah. talked enough about." Yeah, I really like that we're hearing that from Emery now at the moment. Well. Mm. She's like, "Jesus, I have had enough." And these, of again, this much like you be in a fine state, like these mm. moments of you know, like just agency or yeah. like where, yeah, yeah. She's fed up with the priest having a yeah. space within her relationship. With yeah, Mark and she can be assertive in that way. Yeah. Um, but even the way you know, I prefer not to talk about it. Mm. Mrs. Dawson, mm. and then the reader reads she had had enough of Father Lanigan for a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's not it's not um, unrealistic how she how she handles it. Like she's still being mm. respectful, obviously, but but yeah. then we see the impact that that the arguments uh, about Father Lanigan with Marcus mm. have on her. She sinks yes. back into this drift where she no longer has agency, where life is just flowing. Yeah. You know, and will they will arrive at the place they're supposed to go no matter what she yeah. does. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. A, yeah. Disturbing. That's a, that's yeah. There is a low point within this little high point. Yeah. Yeah. I know we've been giving it a very flat reading. It's actually still fairly charged. But I really yeah. like Mrs. Mrs. Dawson talking about men. Um, yeah. Politics, trickery, knavery of all kinds, and then talking about women. Mm. Mm. And then yeah, there's this moment where she says, you know, um, men are dispensable don't you forget it, especially during childbirth and in all matters having to do with female apparel. And you might think genitals, biology, seeing as she's been talking about childbirth, but then she goes on to clothing and the wedding dress and everything. And it's interesting, yeah, that she starts off, you know, that she's, she comes so close to telling her things and will go on to say we should uh, not attend to our private functions as we um, why we should not attend to our private functions as we do our public mm. I don't I don't know but she comes close to saying things um, like meaty substantial things yeah. but then she's like two steps forward one step back all the time so she's like trying to live out this version of straight talking yes you know yeah like in, in, in comparison to and oh we have to mention how she continues to call Henrietta her mother mm. uh, Nina's mother and corrects herself to call mm. her his mother she does yeah. that twice yeah yeah again um, it's just kind of struggling to 
find a place. Yeah. 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 And this like just these relationships are not are not have not settled seamlessly. Mm. Like so much hasn't so many tensions haven't been resolved. Mm. Um, Yeah. And and every and like Mrs. Dawson is also trying to look away from that, mm. and you can tell like she's hu- huge affection for Nina, for Nina as well, yeah. and yeah. her and her situation and her role and all of this, and um, she feels that life is going to be tough for her. And she, know? I think she knows it. Yeah, mm. she knows it. Um, but again and again we have this like kind of this forward and back of like the humor you know are you aware child of your natural functions Mm. um you know and then like it is all a matter of loose clothing moderate exposure to air and regular movements like Mm. what so just like is she talking about hygiene like keeping yourself aerated yeah 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 she will yeah she does she goes forth kind of proclaiming herself as a straight talking lady Mm. who will tell you how it is as a married person Mm. you know and she bemoans the fact that herself and her husband never had children that moment of sadness mm, yeah yeah sorrow but yeah and as well the affection for her husband showing through she enjoyed every other felicity Mm. but that of generation and i think yeah, so you're there. She's gonna she's gonna talk to her about mm. real things, and then she just talks to her about personal hygiene, and, mm. Mm. Um, which you know not an unimportant. Well, I mean, topic, it is but important, yeah. but then it is kind of more, becoming more about maintaining yourself for your husband. Mm. It isn't about a kind of an actual kind of you know finding your place within this mm. kind of new uh, mm. interaction or communication that's yeah. before you yeah. in your married life. You know, and of course, like this is all happening with you know this is all instigated by like Marcus earlier saying was it like their mother who told mm. who told her about men and then she says oh it was Mrs. Dawson um, or she remembers the, the attempt at a conversation with Henrietta and when um, Henrietta is trying to like is going to give her the birds and the bees talk and she's mm. so mortified she's like don't worry Mrs. Dawson told me so that there's that other tear of memory where she yeah. remembers talking to Mrs. Dawson but within the exchange with Mrs. Dawson she's remembering her conversations with Molly who actually imparted this this knowledge to her yes. yeah like yeah. information yeah. yeah joyfully and rambunctiously and yeah of, yeah and yeah. all of the kind of zhuzh of sex and yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, Molly said there, I love that that she'd never marry because it would take the jig out of it. Mm. And we end this reading then with her um, uh, going off to the black quarry with Molly and uh, Jack and herself and this yeah. boy that Molly's arranged for her, Michael, <laughs> who won't let go of her hand. <laughs> oh, and, like. Again, just so recognize, so recognizable. Molly in the sleepy stupor yeah, is hilarious. Just delighted well. with herself, heading off, n- not a care for Nina, who <laughs> she's like, "Well, you wanted to come, and I've set you up with your man, so you know." And then, like that, is it afraid of me? Or it's like just a chill runs down my spine. It's like you're fourteen in a field, like you're like, "Well, here I am oh, with I... such and such as cousin or whoever it is." And like, yes. Oh. Yes. Yeah, and she could have fainted. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And meanwhile, also during all of this, Mrs. Dawson is getting quietly sozzled. Quietly sozzled. You know? Yeah, and and the, again, it's humorous, but there's also that you know that idea of like self medicating and coping, and you know, um, mm. yeah, yeah. 
and she speaks yeah more she gets freer as the kind of conversation continues as the brown liquor is imbibed indeed and talks about you know love being not enough to kind of like mm. uh, seal their union and, and what do you think about this like a section like this appearing so close to the end of the book I suppose like when you know like given given the kind of material we've been reading up until mm. this point like it seems I don't know it's almost like a false sense of security or some, or like a false comfort or something yeah um, that it's giving you an impression of how of the novel winding down I don't know I because th- I think we're given we're we're kind of we're introduced to the tragedy quite yeah, early that's true. on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, so we yeah. know that it's not going to be okay. Yeah. Um, but it kind of it's fl- the fleshing out of how these terrible things came to pass. You mm. know, mm. I mean, we know within the first chapter that Nina is found dead. Is yeah, you know, presumably of Manchester or something. Yeah, and and like, so we know that these they are not going to live and it's so mm. it's just, tragic it's so, to it's so prolonged speaking, yeah. as well and as well that Mrs. Do- you know that for Nina to be there yeah I said preparing for the life that she won't have mm. um, and yeah so yeah we're coming towards the third reading even kind of talking about like how Mrs. Dawson is coping with the impending mm. tragedy she sees through her life of experience mm. kind of unfolding before Emmerine is that she thrusts nearly all of her all of her precious yeah, things Yeah, it's like this domestic her. plunder. It's yeah. like, you know, because Nina says do you think there's a chance for us at all? And she kind of doesn't answer but just starts giving her sort of like the paraphernalia of a happy household mm. um, and said, well, she says the rest will follow. Yeah, yeah. It's not a wedding present. Mm. Yeah. No. Yeah. Take it. Take it all. I have nobody to give it to. Take it. Yeah. Yeah. It's maybe her wishing her the best, but knowing that it won't. You know, the only other option is that the Jew man will take it. Yeah. You know, so (laughs) might as well go to your. Best you have it to your doomed marriage. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Better that. Yes. So on to the third reading. Mm. Nature. That was it. It was nature they were destroying, sure enough, and Molly had been right all along. Even Mrs Dawson, when she finally got around to it, couldn't talk about it as it was, but had to call it our natural functions, as if it was natural for her, and their limbs of desire, and our seat of passion, as if we sat on it to hide it. She had to say that much for Father Lanigan. He was hell-bent on dragging everything out into the open, whatever the consequences, and that was why they hated him so much. They were really afraid of what he might drag out next. When they stepped out onto the street after the wedding, Marcus held her hand tightly and said, Don't look at them. Look straight ahead. She walked down the hill, terrified but proud too, to be seen as his wife in front of all of them. They must have had the young lads waiting with the scut of feathers and the rattling cans. It clattered along the road in front of them, with the young fellows jeering, bringing the whole town out to the windows and doors to watch. Without raising her eyes, she could sense the whole place grinning. Just one big mouth with 
immense lips rolling back from huge teeth. But she wasn't going to be frightened by it because how could you be frightened by people who were afraid to appear themselves but had to send young lads to do the dirty for them? It was the same with the filth they had made in the house and the dirty words scrawled on the walls, although Marcus wouldn't let her see what they had done in front of in the front room upstairs. But she could guess, because he had to throw out all the bedclothes and her nightdress, and they spent the first few nights in her old room, down under the stairs, where they crept into one another and she felt she was taking him into the safety of her own. Was there anything worse than people afraid to be themselves? Was there anything in God's name worse than people afraid of what other people might think of them? When they had finished in the chapel, Henrietta had one of her attacks and had to stay on in the sacristy until it was time for herself and Florrie to go to Thurlis. Nicholas stayed with her, and hers and Emmerine wouldn't mind, but they'd planned to have a little breakfast, not much, together in the house after the wedding as a small celebration. Child, confessed Mrs Dawson tearfully, I will not be able to come to your church to see the wedding. You must understand my standing in the town. Oh, I understand, Mrs Dawson, said Emmerine calmly. Don't give it a minute's thought. I should love to see you marry, child, gasped Mrs Dawson. You will make a beautiful bride. Thank you, ma'am. But I shall never understand why why you associate the, the infidel. Infidel or not, ma'am, said Emmerine grimly. I'm going ahead with it, because my Marcus wants it. Yes, said the old woman, looking at her anew. And she rushed out of the room once more and rushed back again, laden with curtains, crockery, cooking utensils, napkins and a great variety of household objects, all of which she heaped on Emmerine. Oh, Mrs Dawson, please, take them, all of them, child. In the midst of everything else, she had contrived to carry back a bottle with her and she was now refilling her glass, splashing the liquid all over the place. And I wish you a long life. She waved the bottle above her head. Long and happy life. Emmerine sat down into a chair in the middle of all the debris, not knowing whether to laugh or cry. Hold, child, yelled Mrs Dawson, suddenly fixing with the p- her with a pointed finger. How do you supp- propose to wear your hair? My hair? Yes, hair. I don't know, Mrs Dawson. Up, asked Mrs Dawson dramatically. Or down? Uh, up, I suppose, answered Emmerine desperately. Not, I trust, the chignon. Mrs Dawson glared at her. Oh, no, ma'am, I don't think so. I should hope not. Mrs Dawson was in some way satisfied. 
curls we know, frizzing we know, false long locks we know even, she conceded. The frontage may be capable of some explanation, but who, she bellowed, who can explain the chignon? Uh, yes, ma'am, Emmerine muttered wearily. How any Christian body could wear an appendage to the back of the head, a hideous bump far more monstrous, monstrous than, than nature's own deformities assembled from the masses of hair bought by Jew merchants from Polish maidens or taken from the reeking scalps of South American caciques, yes, or cut from their screaming offspring and sold for drink, yes drink by wretched mothers of the London purlieus. Oh, hideous, hideous behold, waved Mrs. Dawson at some unseen field of action. The decline of our sex, we are become the instruments of male tyranny, child. I wouldn't go so far as that, Mrs. Dawson, said Emmerine stoutly. She didn't want to get into an argument with her in this state, but still. Mrs. Dawson took a deep breath and focused unsteadily on Emmerine. She put out a hand and Emmerine felt the soft, pudgy fingers against her cheek. You will. You, you will be beautiful, child, on the day. Thank you, ma'am, said Emmerine bashfully. But still and all, she couldn't help feeling that the very least she could do would be to come to the chapel door to see them get married. Suddenly, and quite without warning, Mrs Dawson's face began to collapse, Starting somewhere about the forehead, the flesh, old and pink, began to crumble and Emmerine watched in horror while all the lines became like jelly and soft, wet tears poured down the cheeks. It was so unlike, so much more horrendous than all the weeping and wailing of before that Emmerine half stood and reached out her hand to the old woman. Oh, Mrs Dawson, what's wrong? Mrs. Dawson gripped her hand tightly, but was unable to speak for several minutes. Her eyes burned away fiercely under the sting of tears, and she shook Emery's hand, Emery's hand this way and that, mute and stricken. Emerine could even see the front of her blouse darken as it wetted under the tears that poured down her throat. Mrs. Dawson, ma'am, please don't, ma'am. Oh, child... The old voice was hardly audible. Child, we are the only flowers of the earth. We don't, if we don't attend to ourselves, where, where are the blossoms? What's left? Where is the brightness in the world? Yes, ma'am, said Emmerine, crying herself now and not really knowing why, knowing only that there, surrounded by all the jumble of the wedding presents, the old woman was trying to tell her something, something wonderful and sad at once. 
something of which she had only a dim perception. So this is such a sad uh, note to end on mm. with uh, Mrs Dawson um, uh, c- completely collapsing. Yeah. Um, and uh, saying child for the first time, I think, without a kind of a, a hyacinth bouquet mm. kind of timbre to mm. her, her voice. It's a, And as well, there's that sense of obviously, you know, Nina is still comparatively pretty young Mm. and going into yet another situation with you know a degree of um maybe not naivety but a degree of ignorance in a way and again Mm. like mrs dawson sort of anticipating what her the challenges ahead yeah yeah um and the the unhappiness and Mm. yeah and and loneliness, I think, is even insinuated here mm. when she, we we if we don't attend to ourselves, yeah, you know, yeah, and I get, and it comes off the back of um, again this humor of like, you know, telling her like, what are you gonna like? Just as uh, Nina thinks she's out the door, <laughs> the hair. What about the hair? And she's like just trying to say anything she can to kind of please her and. Um, I love that old child though like yeah you know she yells it suddenly and it's almost like she's trying she's holding her back holding her back until she until she can get to the stage to say what it is she wants and you know and then again we have this like you know the decline of our sex we are become the instruments of male tyranny child Mm. like it's you know again this like dancing around these deeper topics or these like lessons she's trying to bestow um and yeah and there's some I think there's something you know there's something to be said for this really like gruesome carnal um tenor to this whole paragraph about how any Christian body could wear an appendage to the back of the head a hideous bump bought by Jew merchants from Polish maidens or taken from the reeking scalps of South America. Like, it's just mm. so, so, so um, casually violent. It's so and visceral. It's just yeah. like, I don't know where this, this, yeah. this kind of disgusting kind yeah. of like abhorrent language. And like, this is, this is where, like this, you know, this is where relations with men or where how men, um, um, conduct themselves like this is where it gets us you know where like as women it's just so that, that you know that you're attached to this um, this appendage that she describes in these heinous terms um, and again like Nina's just standing she's just standing there like one foot out the door mm. yeah and I think it's very interesting the way this is structured because mm. we have at the beginning of it uh, her walk through the town mm. and then it comes back, yeah. you know. Yeah, and again, it's like that, you know, it's so sad. <laughs> like, it's her, the wedding day that she has kind of positioned psychologically as this redemptive mm. scenario. Um, and then you know like people have people have you know performed admin in order to make sure they were all there to like jeer at them and Mm. you know shame them and 
and this this crazy image of like the whole town like all of the watchers becoming this huge mouth um this huge grinning mouth Mm. with immense lips rolling back from huge teeth and and then going back to the the vandalized house um and again this sense of like how the schism and how the um this you know the vendetta Mm. um endures even through even into this even into this wedding like it's Mm. it's bizarre it's just bizarre um and that again what she chooses like her narrative voice here isn't you know she could guess because he had to throw out all the bedclothes and Mm. her nightdress so it's like we know there's something like a scatological quality probably to this vandalism Mm. um but she's not she doesn't what what we what she focuses on more is how then they slept in her old room and she feels like she's sheltering him yeah um like it, it it's like she's she's pushing out the the like like in the same way she said i don't want to talk about father lanigan anymore she's like i'm just not giving this any more space inside my head yes and which again is made doubly sad because we know that ultimately this whole situation will will defeat her like mm-hmm. that she um suicides in in, in England yeah um but even even yes i mean she she continues to c- attempt to rein it back in mm. to uh the idea of herself and nicholas mm. they're they're um they're joining together healing healing wow. part of the town mm. and continues to be kind of battered back by mm. that even to the fact that with the fact that Henrietta had one of her her attacks straight after they finished yeah. in the chapel which is just such yeah. disturbing um the language kind of, of phrase it. yeah there. yeah it's like something unseemly it's like mm. to finish is you know it's a verb you use when you don't want to directly name Mm, what it name is something just out what, you, what you've completed yeah yes. uh, um, but that they didn't actually have they weren't able to have their little breakfast celebration because of that it's just salt in the know. wound mm-hmm. like it's like not even the few croissants afterwards <laughs> you know it's far from croissants now <laughs> a continental breakfast but uh, yeah they, she can't even have this I suppose that air of normality a little celebration um, they just yeah, got married you know yeah, something some little it's all you know the, it's all it's sorted all about, and, it's all about this yeah. disagreement but even as well while we're talking about things she chooses to hmm. look at or not look at um you know, uh, where she says she felt she was taking him into the safety of her own. Then was there anything worse than people afraid to be themselves? Was there anything in God's name worse than people afraid of what other people might think of them? And it's like she has this empathy or this emotional intelligence that undercuts the fact that like people have come into her home on her wedding yeah. day um, with the intent to like, you know, to... Um, threaten her and to um, make a point of her, of her yeah. um, in a way or her role in this and she and she detects the the broader themes yeah. that are governing um, this violence and the schism as well it's mm-hmm. like you know she's like this is all you know that the violence you know it's a confluence of fear and violence or fear and violence being the same the same thing like this insecurity mm-hmm. this um, manifesting in this brutal way but um, and so maybe that's why she feels, you know, she was taking Marcus into the safety of her own because she understands these motivations so clearly that yeah. that she can put them 
in to their one place. side. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and Marcus can't. And Marcus cannot. Yeah. 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 Um, and so she she is she is the kind of harbour within this mm. um, and that is so insightful those two sentences of, and I think nearly of the whole book are, and mean, they're so broadly applicable mm. as well um, yeah it's just human nature it's it's what is amiss when somebody has to adhere to rules of society mm. that perhaps they weren't involved in the making of and mm. has lived their entire lives by these rules kind of sacrificing sacrificing passions or mm-hmm. sacrificing urges or whatever mm-hmm. and then sees somebody this in this case uh, Marcus and and Mina kind of pushing that to one side and decide like nearly deciding this doesn't none of this applies to us we are going to yeah. get married and it is going to mean and this and have this uh, this idea of them having their own world inside yeah. this house yeah, yeah. yeah. That, yeah. that kind of joyfulness or that kind of freedom cannot be allowed mm. and must be quashed because because it's seen as an extension of this like and again it's that that insidious presence of just the church it's like because yeah. they're affiliated with this particular churchly incident it's you know that um that they're colored by it yeah. permanently yeah. and that the other people in the town you know that they don't see them as humans anymore they're they're you know they're these reds they're just yeah. um yeah like all common ground is stricken or yes. stripped up like it's yeah. yeah yeah it's a it's a it is it is an old story and i mean then we have kind of the child then that's born uh, mm. with a with a mark on it that yeah. uh, Marcus immediately or a deformity on its lip probably a um, a, hair lip. a hair lip or yeah. something and uh, Marcus completely immediately shuns the child um, it's and the priest curse it's the priest curse you know? yeah. and so he continues then he, he gets wound back into into what Nina attempted to protect him from to build their lives together. It's like this self-flagellating thing as well where yeah, it's a yeah. fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Like the kid could have had like one ear smaller than the other and yeah. it would have been a sign of the Or born with hair. Yeah. Yeah, something, anything, yeah. you know, or yeah. or a, a birthmark or anything. Yeah. You know, it's a it's a he sees what he sees. And he, it's so and like Nina says to him like it's something what she says something awful that would has you giving up your own flesh. Yeah. And but he's so and I suppose it's like a version of himself probably that he's fallen in love with for better or worse this idea of like this consistently loyal man who will be loyal to Lanigan no matter what and that he has this endurance and this perseverance so it's I feel like it's a version of himself that he can't part with um, but he can never kind of like reassign that loyalty to his connection with Nina. Mm, that doesn't mm, ever happen. Mm, you know, the entirety of their relationship does begin to pale in comparison to his love of the priest and his sacrifice of his own kind of like milestone moments such yeah. as his wedding for the priest's benefit. Yeah, it's like a matter of intensity, like nothing. It's like the schism and the violence of it is part of his relationship with the priest mm. for better or worse. It's not like a negative or a positive. It's just a matter of intensity. Um, like how strongly that relationship like lives on in his body and mind. So yeah, so Nina with her you know, with their consensual, mutually beneficial love, like that's not even going to factor on the spectrum. No, you know? no. And uh, so he is, he is essentially lost 
to Nina you mm. know he's lost to the priest the next time when she wakes up is when she's handing her child to Mrs O'Shea yeah and getting on a boat to England this, I mean and do you think it would have been different if she hadn't been in the laundry do you think things would have played out differently or would have it just been inevitable like a well, because like the the thing that we haven't spoken about, which was kind of happened after this chapter, or we we don't really know, is the death of Nicholas and mm. uh, and Marcus's part in that, or or his part, questionable he, you alleged. Know, I mean, yeah. my God, like Marcus, you know, he's just so. If Nicholas committed suicide, he was completely his whole life was completely decimated. Mm. There's not, that you would struggle to find a more tragic kind of uh, character mm. in literature. Um, and he's he's been found mm. uh, on the stairs while they are sleeping mm. and kicked out of the house and Marcus pursues him. You know, what happened then, whether he killed himself, whether Marcus killed him, mm. uh, if Marcus took, uh, took on the murder of him to spare Nicholas the... The shame um, and the associated after like suicide, yeah, yeah, know, and exactly, yeah, damning, the, yeah. you know, um, that uh, that yeah. So now he is gone. He's physically gone from mm. Nina's life, mm. and she she has to she has to try to to do something with her life. Yeah, you know? yeah, and that again, she's just continually shunned. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just and again. Yeah, just one, I suppose it's like this delving into this one family unit that is just so destroyed by, by this, you know, by this priest and his conflict with the wider church. Like it's, yeah. yeah. With the attempt to wrangle power from his To maintain a degree of power. We were saying that the priest does get kind of like some... um, I suppose kudos or street cred or whatever it is kind of of a rebellious kind of nature and he was trying to put in a girl's school so people Mm. kind of give him that kind of you know he's a bit of a uh, maverick yeah but because and and Scully Master Scully says it as well like you know because it went so far beyond that it's yeah it may have started with these um, like modern intentions but it's his it's his ego that causes it to endure and it's his ego ultimately that could be blamed if you're interested in ascribing blame for um for this for all these unravelings mm. you know yeah and and the fact that that marcus just follows in his footsteps you know yeah. his life just it's just he's consumed by it and that yeah. it, that sense of like because it's the church because it's a priest no matter what happens it's it's the right thing yeah. yeah, and Nina's part in this, you know, I mean, all of her kind of joyfulness and all of her hopes and dreams and this whole idea of their union, like mending the schism and being a beacon of hope. It's just flounders. It's yeah. so sad to see it fail, yeah. you know, in this kind of like against this anger of the town, but also against the stubbornness of the priest and of mm. Marcus. And they're like, we're on this road and we're going to continue on this road wherever it leads. Yeah. The idea of the current just carrying on no matter what she does. Yeah. That she references, you know. Uh, I do think, um, I do think that she's a wonderful character, you know. Yeah. And it's wonderful to to spend so much time with her in this chapter. Yeah. Yeah. And to get an insight into her urges and her desires Mm. and her kind of interior motives. And to see from this like female perspective and the and this you know and someone who has been 
cast out Mm -hmm. to come back and see yeah like her as a prism for desire for shame for blame Mm -hmm. um for the priest for the men for for their Mm -hmm. behavior you know um yeah like as a narrative device it's it it's effective and it's clever you know yeah yeah. Yeah. and I think that this uh, definitely this chapter has really kind of resonated with us with the um development of the theatre production of the Big uh, Big Chapel Mm. Um, because uh, what is happening for sure I think is the story is being told from Nina's Mm. uh, perspective she's the central kernel because it was so it's so male dominated uh, that it was feeling that there was just there needed to be just more of a platform for her voice to be heard to as grand well throughout yeah. all of this and I think it's like the viewer like a contemporary reader mm. identifies probably with her mm. you know more, more more readily because like her her values or her hopes are maybe more mm-hmm. um yeah applicable today than kind of blind loyalty to yeah to to an to any institution you yeah. know or you know dogma yeah. yeah, whether that be the falling one or the emerging one mm. of like the new papacy and yeah, yeah. Well, that's our time, I think, Sue. And uh, it's just been such a pleasure talking to you. No, sure. Listen, thank you for having yeah. me. Like, I'm so glad that we, we got to talk about this chapter. Mm. I think it was really important that yeah. Uh, that it was us talking about it. Uh, so um, housekeeping again, the Big Chapel podcast is brought to you through Asylum Productions in partnership with Kilkenny Arts Festival and the Abbey Theatre. Uh, we are part of a series of talks, workshops, events and community gatherings culminating in a large promenade theatre production in Callan in Kilkenny Arts Festival 2019. It's coming up really, really soon. Uh, and be sure to listen to the accompanying readings of each chapter of the Big Chapel read quite inexpertly uh, by me. <laughs> Sincerely, you might hear Sue chuckling in the background of this particular one. Um, and uh, tune in for the next episode. And do get in touch with us on thebigchapel at gmail.com if you have any stories or insights or recollections in relation to the Callancism and follow us on social media. Thanks a million again, Sue. No, thank you. It's a, a pleasure. pleasure. Thanks. Yeah. Okay, bye. Bye. <laughs>